We've got a, a, a gathering of a number of different verses here, and it's a really special thing to consider. If you're Peter, and you're writing to these Christians that you care about so much, how do you finish the letter? How do you wrap it up? Well, we'll see today what was on his heart through the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit as we have these verses that finish out this letter. Let's begin in verse 5, and uh, I've titled this section, these few verses here, The Path of Humility. The Path of Humility. Likewise, Peter says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Let's start with that and just consider that a little bit. You remember where we left off last week? The call was to the elders, specifically calling the elders to shepherd the flock, shepherd the flock that is among you. And then the call here echoes that to then the members of the church, and specifically he's talking in this line to those who are younger, those who are younger, a younger generation coming up in the church who love Christ are called specifically here to be submissive or subject to the elders. It's a call for humility in a younger generation. Now, there is in all of us, I experienced this when I was young, and I think all of us do in a certain different way, the instinct to what I'm calling generational pride. It is not new. It is uh, actually as old as time when a younger generation will look at those who are ahead of them, older than them, and say, you know, you guys are just out of touch. You guys are, are out of touch. You are, you are in, uh, in, in just, just, you're stuck in the old ways. You need to let us loose and turn it. We'll really make this thing work. Now, it happens in politics. It happens in all kinds of social interactions, but it especially happens in the church. And I remember um, as a young man coming into ministry, um, there were books being written, and still are to this day, many books that had the, the, the target of basically, we need to hit the reset button on the church. We're doing it all wrong. All these old people are just stuck in their ways, and they're doing it all wrong. We need to fix this thing. And we'll dismantle the church, kind of deconstruct it, and rebuild it up. Is anyone else kind of sick of that language? Like, pretty much everywhere you turn on the news these days, we need to tear it all down. I believe that operating underneath that a lot of times is what I would call this generational pride. The idea that somehow, um, well, we know better. We know better. You can look at some of the comments of Andy Stanley as it relates to um, the Old Testament and uh, the, the ignorance of those people back in the day. The, how, how easy it is to say they were ignorant and how easy it is to say, well, we are not. So here's the guard. We have to put our, our guard up here and say, listen, the call to humility is the call to not throw everything out. Now, sure, do we make adjustments? Absolutely, we do. But we need to learn from those who have gone before. And many times we'll find that the things that they do and the decisions that they're making are informed by years of learning, many times the hard way. And there's a value in studying and, and, and working together and growing and shaping under those. Now, in the church, specifically those who are called to shepherd in an elder role, the young people in the church are encouraged then to tuck under that lead. Be submissive to it. Don't grind against it. Don't, don't think, well, you know, it's those old songs. They got to go. Well, maybe those old songs will bless you. You never know. Now, the call here can show up in a variety of ways. Worship wars many times boil down to this. 
Pride. Pride. This is the sound we want. This is the song we want. This is what we're after. And the call here is, let's work together. If Jew and Gentile can come together in the gospel, so can those who are older and those who are younger. But especially for young people, young men who are strong and and, and ambitious, there's a call to humility there and uh, to learn from the elders and let them shepherd you. Now, in case you thought because you're older you don't have to worry about this, Peter goes on, clothe yourselves, all of you, because the reality is is that an older generation can also be prideful, right? It's easy to get a little stuck in your ways and become defensive and shield up and, and be divisive. And so all of us, every single one of us is called now here to be clothed in humility, clothed in the garments of humility toward one another. And then the basis of this is, For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So let's consider this. To be clothed with humility. One of the things that we try to avoid at this church is the idea that that clothes are the main thing on Sunday morning. We don't want clothes to be the main thing. We want the heart to be the main thing. right? So we're working actively to make sure we guard against legalism and its expressions in various ways. Uh, d- does it matter what socks you wear to me? No, it does not. What I, you wear whatever socks you want, okay? Um, what matters far more than the socks you wear to church is the heart you bring when you come in the door. The call is to be robed, wear the clothes of humility. Come in the door with a humble heart. Come in robed in the righteous um, approach of Christ, the attitude of Christ, the mind of Christ. You might think of it this way as we, as we studied Philippians 2 just this past week. This passage echoes for us who are in Bible study. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Not, not a thing, not a single thing is the command. But in contrast to that, in humility, count others more significant, more important than yourselves. Let each of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, this attitude in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. How humbling that was for our Savior, the creator of all things, to take upon that which he created in humanity. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, that's not where it stopped. He kept going. He, he went to the full extent, which was he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So the bar for the call to humility has been set by our Savior. It is not a fuzzy call. It's clear. And the call for us is have that mind. Be clothed in that when you walk in the door, when you run into one another throughout the week, when you have an issue with someone, clothe yourself in humility. Oh, what a call this is. This is one of the signs of a healthy church. When the people that make her up are are robed in Christ and approaching these things, not selfishly, but selflessly, counting others more significant than themselves. 
I want to commend you, church, for the journey that we have made over the past 15 years. I have seen this show up again and again and again. This is wonderful to see. As an, as an elder in the church, I have witnessed countless displays of hum, humble love taking place. And all the more in the years ahead. We all can grow in this as we move forward together. Now, there is a choice to be made in the morning. If you want to wake up, get out on one side of the bed, and you're inviting the opposition of God if you get out in pride, and you come into your day and you say, oh, it's all about me today. I'm going to live for me. I'm going to live for my glory, for my purpose. I want to make much of me. It's about me. You are inviting the opposition of God. Can you imagine? That's not the way to get out of bed in the morning. I would recommend get out the other side of the bed in humility. Thank you, Lord, that I'm alive. You've given me more than I deserve already. I'm alive today. Before my feet hit the floor, thank you. This day is yours. You've ordained it. I want to walk before you in obedience and, and humility. For every interaction that comes my way, I want to please you. And I want to love that person the way you loved me, which is totally undeserved. To walk in that way is to invite or to position yourself, as it were, in the place of God's grace. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What, you see what he's saying here? Jesus is teaching this. Humility is saying, I lack, you supply, bring it on. I need you. I need everything you have. I am not sufficient in and of myself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I am poor, left to myself. I am in need of you, O God. We walk by His grace every minute of every day, all the way through eternity. This past week, I did some comparison work as we were studying for Philippians 2, and here's a short list. There are many, many more. This is just kind of just popcorned out of my mind as I was thinking of the difference between pride's approach and humility. Pride, first of all, is out, it's an inward thing. Pride is inward. I, I live for me. It's all about me. When I walk into church, I say, what will people think about me? It's about me, right? Humility is just the opposite. It's outward. It's outward. It's about you. It's about you. How can I help you? How can I bless you? I walk into church and I say, there you are, right? It's a totally different approach. Pride is also boastful. Pride says, check the name on the jersey. Don't forget it. I'm the one that scored here. I'm the one that did this. You need to remember my name. Humility doesn't worry about that. Humility is grateful. It's quick to point up. Point up and say, thank you, God, for the gifts you give. Thank you for every success. It's from you. It's for you. I am yours. Pride is isolating. Oh my goodness, this is so true. Pride will, will push people away and offend and isolate until you find yourself in a bubble of your own making full of mirrors pointed at you. Humility is just the opposite. Humility, humility is inviting. It's welcoming. It's come on in. Let's journey together. We're in the same boat, aren't we? We need this God. Look at how He loves us. Pride is judgmental. It's quick to point the finger. It's your fault. Look what you did wrong. Look how you don't measure up. Look at me, right? Oh, pride. Oh, it's just ugly this way. 
Humility is gracious. It doesn't ignore sin, but it, it's quick to say, you know what, I'm a sinner too. I, I fall short as well. It's quick to say, I am in need of God's grace. Pride is easily offended. Pride is a snowflake, right? At the core. It's, it just melts with the slightest little heat. Oh, woe is me. It's all about me. Humility is patient, thick-skinned, willing to bear with one another. Even when you step on my toes, I love you. I will put up with this. I will bear it. We talked about this recently. At its core, that's pride that's being expressed. You must do everything possible, walk on eggshells because the whole world is about me, pride says. The opposite is true for humility. Pride loves legalism. This is one of the most toxic realities in church is how pride loves rules, checklists, keeping records, and then comparing and assessing. Well, I, I think I'm doing better than this person because I do boom, 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 boom. Or I, I have, I've never done boom, 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 right? You feeling it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a record-keeping legalism, performance religion. Pride flourishes in this place. What does humility love? Gospel. Gospel. I'm the chief of sinners, Paul says. I know my sin more than any of you know my sin. He forgave me. How is that possible? I don't deserve it. I'm in awe of his love for me. If he loved me that way, then I can love you that way too. Pride is quick to grumble, complain, question, shake a fist. I know better, God. If I were you, I would never do this. If I were you, I, was always, I would always do this. Where are you? Why don't you? Not humility. Humility turns to God, not from God, turns to God in trust. In trust. Do we have questions? Sure, we do. But oh, we cover our head. I am the pot. You are the potter. Have your way, O oh God. Who am I to question your hand? Who am I to suggest to you how you should operate? I am the tiny little ant. You are the God of all creation. And yet you love me. Glory be. Pride holds grudges. Keeps records of wrongs. It doesn't want to let go. It's bitter. It's angry. It simmers. That's pride. Oh, it's pride. That is the source. That's the root Humility is quick to forgive. If you struggle with bitterness, your struggle is with pride. Re realize that. that at, at its core, that's what it is. You have been forgiven an infinite amount of offense in the gospel. Forgive. 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 Pride loves to be served. Humility delights to serve, just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. He washed the feet. The disciples are arguing, well, who gets to sit on your right and left? And Jesus gets up, robes himself as a servant, and washes their smelly feet. That's humility. That's love. The list goes on. Pride hides and hurls, you might say. It, it hides my sin, makes me the victim, and it blames everybody but me. 
right? I am the victim here. It's all your fault. Everyone else out there should, should feel bad about what they've done. That's pride. Humility says, I am the chief of sinners. I own my sin. I see my sin. Even when I'm sinned against, I know that I have my own sin here. And I confess it. I take it to where the gospel has made provision for me in Jesus. And I worship, repenting of that sin. So that's just a short list. The list could go on and on. But I I want you to see how massively different it is. One path walked invites the opposition of God. And if you are a Christian, he will oppose you in his loving discipline because this is poison to your soul to walk in this path. If you walk in the path of humility, you are walking in a dependent path upon God, looking to him for all things, drawing upon the gospel power. His grace is lavish there. Humble yourselves, therefore, Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Do you see the connection of pride here? Your hand is not mighty. His is. So get under it. Under, get under His mighty hand, and then look at how this goes. So that at the proper time, by the way, He determines that, not me, not you. When He determines, as the sovereign ruler over all things, including your suffering and trials and hardships, At the proper time when he determines it, he will lift you up. He will exalt you. And then he says this. Look at the connection here. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So all of a sudden, this thing just went off in my brain this week. It's like, what? I don't think I ever knew this. There is a connection between pride and and anxiety. Look at how this goes. Self-reliance and pride will want to exalt self. It will want to fix it for self. I can figure this out. I will do this. Here's the situation. Here's what we're going to do. And worry is when I carry it like I can handle it, like I somehow can solve it. I just carry it up. I heap it up on my shoulders, and I walk along. Oh, I don't know. How's it going to go? Peter calls us to the opposite of that. Don't carry that burden. You're not intended to. You can't carry that. Go to the one who can. In humility, bend your knees and bow before him and bring him. Cast your burdens upon him. His shoulders are quite a bit bigger. He can carry it. Are you casting, Christian, or are you keeping? The heart that keeps at its source is a proud heart that says, I just can't let this go. I've got to solve it. The humble heart says, Lord, I know I can't, but I know you can, and I trust you with it. I I relinquish control. I can't fix it, and I love you and I trust you, and you care for me, which means you're working for my best. I, I, I can trust you. And you throw it to him. Anxiety is an expression of pride. You might just write that down because for me, that was, that was brand new this week. I never in my life have come across that before, and it just jumped off the pages as I studied. If you're a person who struggles with a lot of anxiety, or if you worry a lot, then get to the root of that and bend your knees in total dependence on a sovereign God and watch what he does to bring peace 
into your heart. Be anxious for nothing is the command, but in everything, how? By prayer and supplication, make your request known to God. And the peace of God surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety is an expression of pride, one that we are not meant to carry. You could say it this way, Lord, I am not in control, but you are. It's the simplest way. So just go to him that way. I am not in control. I can't solve this. I can't change their heart. I can't fix this. But you can. You can. And I look to you. And I plead with you. If it, if it be your will, if it bring you glory, then here's the burden. Boom. Take it. I trust it to you. This is a daily work. It's not a one-time event, is it? The battle against anxiety is not just a one-time event. It's every day. It's when you feel that pressure come, bend your knee, Christian, and go to the one who can carry that for you. Cast it on him. So we move from this path, the path of humility now, to address an amazing reality, and that is that you have a ferocious enemy, Christian. Verses 8 and 9. Look at the connection with how Peter does this. This is his closing words. This is the path he wants us to see. Walk in humility. Trust the Lord. Depend and pray, pray for him to help. And then don't forget, you are opposed in this world. Evil foes and confident faith. Verse 8. Be sober-minded, Christian. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. These are words that we must remember. We live in a day that is so easy to just kind of saunter through life and think, well, you know, Satan and demons and all that mumbo-jumbo, that's probably just for the storybooks, right? No, that's Bible. That's reality. Remember this. Satan and demons are real. They are powerful. Let's be clear. Far more powerful than any of us in this room. Far, far more powerful than any of us in this room. Left to ourselves? <laughs> we don't stand a chance. You turn a lion loose in this building right now, a hungry lion, and we're dead meat, okay? We're, de we're dead meat. Left to ourselves on our own, we, we don't face down lions. Now, I can't wait to go to Daniel because there's a lion story in the book of Daniel. It just brings us to life all the more. It's coming in a few weeks. Satan is real. His host of demonic forces are real. And they are powerful. You remember the story of the sons of Sceva? They're like, Jesus we know. Paul and Peter and whatnot, we, we know them. But who are you? It was just some Jewish guys that thought they could, you know, get a reputation by casting out demons. And the demon man jumped on seven dudes and beat them to a pulp and sent them out the door naked and bleeding, it said. So that's, that's us left to ourselves. The call here is to stay focused and spiritually alert. Remember this. Don't walk through the Christian life as if somehow you have no enemy. You, my friend, have an enemy, Christian, and he is serious. He hates you. He plots against you. He comes against you. We know that we are from God, John writes, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Don't forget that, Christian. 
The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, be reminded that that is the sovereign assignment of God for Satan for such a time as this. God is sovereign over Satan. He is sovereign over evil. And he has chosen at this time that he would allow a, 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 a power to be released on this earth for his purpose in this season. And then that just awesome passage in Ephesians 6, talking about the armor of God. Here's verse 12. Believer, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. The evil ones, that's the enemy. This is a reality that we've got to have in view. Stay focused on. Remember, this is, this is an intense spiritual conflict that's taking place, and you're a part of it. It's dangerous to forget this. It's, it's dangerous. It's like walking on the beaches of, of, of Normandy with no helmet and no gun, just wandering around in the middle of the landing and bullets fling, flying everywhere. That's not safe. You need to armor up. Get that armor on. This is how the, the enemy of your soul is described, Satan himself. He is a prowling, roaring lion seeking to devour. Let's talk about prowling. Who has cats in here? Got some cats? Okay. You ever watch cats? What's cool about cats is they all kind of show the same like, behavior. Even the cute little ones, up to the big lions, that tail, you can just tell they're plotting your death. Like even the little ones, the kittens, they're, caught, they're walking and you can see their, their legs and then, then they pounce and they jump on you and they tackle the little feather and whatever. They're prowling, they're plotting. Satan is like that. And by the way, he is of, of old, okay? So here we are, Christians, 2023. He's been about this work for a couple thousand years, plus all those before that. So, I mean, add it up. He is, he is strategically coming after you, and he knows how to do this. He's good at it. But don't think he's plotting and, and, and prowling quietly. Note, note how he prowls. He prowls with roaring. It's a roaring lion. So we were at the zoo. I remember hearing this. And man, you talk about giving instant goosebumps. You're walking by the big lion, cage and you hear that roar, roar and just, whoa man thought I died well Satan is a lion who roars why he wants to intimidate you he wants to make you afraid he wants to remind you that he is powerful and you are not he seeks to devour you he wants to come after you Christian because guess what you are not part of his domain. You've been brought out of darkness and you've been in, infused with the Holy Spirit. So there's no Christian that can be indwelled by demons. You are the, the, the residence of God himself lives in you. You are light in the dark and he hates that. He wants to devour you. How does he want to do that? He wants to destroy your faith. He wants to undercut it, make you afraid, make you tremble. Make you focus on things that are not going to build and strengthen your faith. Hmm. The system of the world is his greatest 
achievement. It's his greatest leverage against the church and her people. Intense pressure to conform. It's when the darkness comes around the light and says, listen, we don't like you shining. We don't like you not conforming to our, our goals, our agenda. We don't like you, and so you know what we're going to do? We're going to cancel you. We're going to shut you up. And if need be, we're going to threaten you. We may even kill you. Oh, the fear of offense, fear of consequences. What if I stand? What if I am faithful? What if I don't recant? What if I stand for what the Bible says is true and loving and right? What may happen? Oh, that fear is powerful. Conformity to the darkness. Temptations to cave and quit. Just turn away. Give up. Walk away. Curse God and die, is what Job's wife said to him. That's exactly what the enemy would want to say to us. Turn away from God. Why are you trusting God? Curse Him and just die. Lay down and die. Hmm. So what do we do? How do we respond? Well, there's a lot of voices out there these days, and there have been for many years, um, with a lot of words about responses that are not biblical. Frankly, they, they, they come up with strategies that don't come out of the Scriptures. They come up with strategies, and in some cases, they are demonic strategies. Strategies to draw your attention to the enemy, to focus your attention there and spend all your time there, feeding on fear and becoming intimidated all the more. I like to bring this up. I just, I, I don't know why. I just find this so funny. That should, we, should we ask for a hedge of protection? I, I don't know where that comes from, from the Scripture, but I'm thinking if it's a cat, he can jump over it. We need more than a hedge, okay? We need something tall. We need something cat-proof, lion-proof. We need, we need something else than a hedge. What about the binding of spirits? The binding of spirits. Let me just say this. There is this practice, and it happens a lot, especially among charismatic uh, movements, and I think maybe they try to get it from when Jesus was talking about binding the strong man. Do you, you know that's a parable he told to illustrate the truth that he was not satanic? He, like, he was there to disarm Satan through the cross, through his finished work on the cross. That, that's his goal. That's what he's talking about. He was not calling Christians to go around binding demons. That's not at all what he was teaching there. So if, if this instinct is, oh, you know, we bind you, demon, we, we bind you. Well, how long does that last? Because if it lasts for quite a while, like what John MacArthur was saying, he was like, maybe we should just, one of us, just stand up and be like, we bind them all for all eternity. And they're all like, oh, great, man, we didn't see that coming. We're all bound. Work is done. It's just silly. Not in the Bible. It's just not in the Bible. What about a holy roar? Holy roar. Should we all gather up and try to roar louder than the lion who is Satan who roars to intimidate us? Are we going to win this thing by showing our strength as a church and intimidating the darkness to run away? Is that what we do? We just draw up our own strength and in our authority, we roar. It's out there. There's a guy named uh, Khan. What's his name? Jonathan Kahn, Return of the Gods, The Harbinger, whatever it is. Um, 
He spends a lot of time trying to name and identify these forces of evil. I just would warn you, that guy is leading people astray. He is drawing upon things that are not scriptural. And his suggestions, I do not believe, are biblical. This is what we do. We go to the Word of God and we say, how do we respond? And here's a very simple response. And it's in so many places. It's, it's quite simple. Resist him, is what Peter says here. Resist him. Right? Don't, don't, don't just lay down and die. Don't, don't do what he calls you or, or be intimidated to run away in fear. Resist him. Firm in your faith. So picture the posture of a faithful Christian. It is this. It's defensive. It's shield up, armor on, firm in the faith, and don't forget the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. This is not new, and it's not unique to you. So be encouraged. God is at work even in the moment when the adversary comes at you with teeth and intimidation and a loud roar. Resist him. It doesn't say we're supposed to be demon hunters running around and chasing them around and trying to name them and, and claim them and slay them. And, no, none of that stuff. Stand firm in the faith. That, that call shows twice in Ephesians 6. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm in James 4. Uh, resist him, same language, and he will flee from you. How do you do it? Firm in the faith. Firm in the gospel. Hmm. I am a child of God. This may help be how it sounds. In that temptation, in that, that, that pressure to conform, remind yourself of who you are. Don't ever forget who you are. Your identity in Christ. I am a child of God. I stand secure in Christ. This armor is not me. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. This shield of faith is how I stand. I am filled with the Holy Spirit. He cannot indwell me. He might come at me, but he cannot indwell me. I am marked by the very presence of God. I know where I go even if I die. God is at work even in this moment. He is at work for my good and for his glory. He is refining me as the lion comes at me. Here's a big one. He is absolutely sovereign over all my enemies. Not me. Not, not me. I stand no chance left to myself against this line. I, I am a dead man. But in him, that lion becomes a tiny little kitten. On a leash? Do you put a kitten on a leash? We'll say a dog on a leash. That fits better. He is a dog on a leash. He has no room to run but that for what God has assigned him and for his sovereign purpose and good in this world. I fear no evil. Not a hair on my head will fall outside of God's will. If God decides that I would join the ranks of the martyrs, the honored martyrs, then my head will fall from my body for his glory and by his hand, ultimately, even if it's at the hands of sinful men. I don't fear. That's the call. Stand firm, even unto death. And you may be 
one of the many that God has ordained that the set number of martyrs be filled up for the authentic uh, glory of the gospel in persevering faith, even unto death or fire or beheading or whatever. Fill in the blank. This suffering and persecution is common. It's not new. It's not unique to us. This is church history, friends. And it should be expected. we we got to resolve in moments like this before the fire falls. No, this is normal Christian living. The call is stand firm. Stand firm. Now, temporary suffering and eternal glory. Here's the good reminder. I love how he lands this. This is not the reality for the rest of our eternity. This is a temporary, momentary suffering. And it will issue into eternal glory. It is coming, and it's coming soon. And when he returns, all of this will be addressed and made right. After you have suffered a little while, look at this title. I just wanted you to see that on its own line. The God of all grace. It's a name, a, t- a title that you can pray. Oh, God, the God of all grace. Talk to him that way. Remind your soul of who he is. What has he done? Well, he, he's called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Guess where that started? That's in the first chapter. So Peter purposefully goes back to the beginning to remind us as believers that we have indeed been elected of God and called to life, the effectual calling of God through His Holy Spirit to life, out of darkness into light. And He has called us not only to this life now, but into His eternal glory. How? In Christ. In Christ. And then in your Bible, you might underline this. He will Himself, this is personal, This is personal. God is not distant when you are hurting, when you are persecuted, when you suffer. He is close. He knows what you're going through. He loves you and cares for you. And he will himself restore you, confirm you, strengthen and establish you. It's personal for God. It reminds me of John 6 when Jesus says, all that the Father has given me will come to me and And I will raise them up on the last day. I will lose nothing of all that he has given me. We fear no enemy. Satan himself cannot snatch you from his hands. You dwell secure, Christian. Hmm. And then he goes to this. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is a crescendo of worship. It's a, it's a beautiful combination here. Think of the things that he could have said at the very end. To him be the glory. That would fit, absolutely. Many times you see that. To him be the praise, yes. To him be um, all things, yes, true. But notice the emphasis Peter puts here. Dominion, rule, sovereignty. And it's paired with worship and peace. One of the reasons why it's so important that you, believer, have a category for what I'm calling the absolute sovereignty of God is that it is the granite upon which you stand, unshakable foundation that will bring you the most peace. If you want 
peace in this life and the next that comes through the gospel, through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. What a gift. And that is found in the reminder that He is God. He's God. We are not. It puts us in a posture of humility under His mighty hand. It puts us on our knees in prayer, looking to Him for everything, because we don't have it, and He does. And it puts us in church with the saints to sing a song of praise, overflowing forever because He is God, we are not. To Him be the dominion. Over Satan, absolutely. Over all evil, absolutely. Over every single person who has ever lived on the face of this earth, Absolutely. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. That includes today. That includes whatever you face the rest of your life. And that includes forever. What a crescendo to finish with in this book. Now some housekeeping, some final greetings. I want to point a couple things out that are significant here in these final verses. By Silvanus. Guess who that is? That's Silas. Guess, guess who was there? When, uh, when, when the, the church was founded, you think of, think of all of these things. Silas, the faithful brother, he was with Paul in Philippi, the, the book we're studying right on Wednesdays. He was with Paul in the jail singing songs of praise. Now he's with Peter, writing and helping Peter as he, as he pins this letter. And then he's the one that's going to take and carry this letter to the various churches that are, are written to here. He said, I've written you briefly, uh, exhorting and declaring what is the true grace of God. Stand firm. There's the call again. Stand firm. That's the posture of it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen or elect, sends greetings to you. This is the church. This is the believers in the area where Peter is writing to the believers over there. And I think this might have been purposely kind of vague so that the persecution would not be pointed upon them or, or attracted to them in any additional way. And then he says, so does Mark, my son. Uh, that's not his physical son. That's a spiritual son. John Mark, you remember him? He's the one who wrote the gospel of Mark, who worked with Peter to the recounting of his gospel. And he also helped and served and ministered here as Peter was writing this letter. So he finishes with, greet one another with a kiss of love, Peace to all who are in Christ. Words of love and comfort, encouragement to fellow believers who are suffering and about to enter one of the most difficult trials the church has ever seen. Um, suffering under, uh, what was that guy's name? Yeah, louder. Nero. Nero, thank you. The Neronian persecution. Oh, it was awful. It was awful. The response this morning, Good Shepherd Bible Church, know this. We are called to triumph in troubled times in these ways. Here's a, here's a survey over back of all of the sermons that we covered in 1 Peter. 23 sermons. Just look about these things that Peter has in view as he's equipping us to stand. Equipping us not just to stand, but to triumph. We live in a post-Christian nation. More and more I'm convinced of it. It's, it's post-Christian it's becoming anti-Christian more and more. Schools are compromised. The, 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 the structures of society that used to stand on solid ground are shaking and falling apart. How are we to live in this day? What a letter of encouragement for us. 
to walk in faithfulness with our God. I thought of the old hymn. This is how I want to close. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, that would be eternity, our shelter from the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and we thank you for the gift of this letter. We thank you that it was not only written by the hand of Peter and his helpers and sent to those believers of that day, but that you wrote this letter, preserved it, handed it down, and brought it to us in 2023. We bless you and thank you for the way that it has equipped us and encouraged us, for the call that it is for us to, to triumph even in the midst of these days. Lord, help us. We are weak. We are frail. We often have responses that are not righteous and godly. We want to grow, O oh Lord, by the letter that you have given us here in 1 Peter. Strengthen us. Build our faith, we pray. Grow us to be more and more rooted in you, trusting you, resting in your absolute sovereignty over all things. And Lord, find us faithful. By your grace, sustain us until the very end when we see you and rejoice, O oh God. Until that day, we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.